podcast for November 13th, 2008. I'd like to welcome back my regular panel, David McKee from the Las Vegas Advisor. Hey, David. Hi. Chuck Monster from VegasTripping.com, back from his uh, vacation. Hi, Chuck. Uh, hello there. <laughs> we missed you last time. Uh, oh, yeah. Missed you guys, too. It's a great show. <laughs> Dave Schwartz from UNLV Center for Gaming Research. Good afternoon, Dave. Hey there. And Jeff Simpson from the Las Vegas Sun and In Business Las Vegas, if there is anyone still in business in Las Vegas. Um, welcome, Jeff. Greetings. Uh, it's good to have Chuck back because in the uh, four weeks since uh, his last participation, the industry has gone to hell in a handbasket. So uh, welcome back, Chuck. Yeah, we have to have hey, right. blame it on. <laughs> yeah, it's all my fault. Uh, my name's Hunter, and I'm at RateVegas.com. And we're going to start off right away. Um, just moments ago... Um, there was a news release uh, regarding MGM Mirage. Their chairman and chief executive officer, Mr. Terry Lani, is retiring. And um, the, for me, the most interesting part about this story is the timing and the fact that his resignation will be effective in basically two weeks, um, which, as we were saying before the show, is about the same amount of notice that the uh, legal clerk down in the legal department gives when they quit their job. Not usually what you see with uh, someone at the top of the uh, food chain. So, um, you know, I'm just going to open this up. I'm curious, why is he leaving? Is I mean, I'm ho- hopefully it's not some kind of a personal problem like he has some kind of a sickness. I mean, is it lack of confidence? And if so, why would they consider Jim Murren, who's basically been co-executing this strategy for so long as the next guy to lead the company? Or is this something that he's just planned for a long time and he's just taking the opportunity? And if so, what's with the two weeks? I mean, that just seems like such a short amount of time. Well, I don't I have any speculatory uh, theories to offer. <laughs> I was just going to say there was a there was a hint of this when uh, when I heard that um, that he was not going to be participating in the in the Gary and Terry show at G2E, otherwise known as the State of the Industry panel. So uh, that was, I mean, had any of us been even the slightest bit clairvoyant, we might have read something into that. I think it's surprising that he left before City Center opened. Um, and and uh, when he announced the shakeup at the head of the company in 2007, um, I said that, you know, at the time that that made it clear that Marin was the heir apparent. There were a few uh, skeptics about that, but um, it was clearly true then, and ob- it's obviously true now. Um, but I think that you know he put out a memo to employees today, uh, Lanny did, that said it's definitely not is not health related. Uh, he you know he said it's not you know it's it's just time for my wife and I to move on. You know, Lanny has always been somewhat ambivalent about running the company. I mean, he resigned uh, nine years ago um, when um, it appeared that the company was sort of going to be stagnant um, with um, MGM Detroit, New York, New York, the Prim Properties, and MGM Grand. And then when Kerkorian, you know, decided to pony up the bucks to buy Mirage, um, a reinvigorated Lanny, uh, you know, welcomed the opportunity to take over the the uh, the company again, and has done so for um, almost nine years um, again. Um, but Lanny, um, he uh, he certainly 
laid the groundwork for leaving when he did announce his company shake up a year ago, um, sort of sliding Bobby Baldwin into a smaller portfolio and um, effectively um, tabbing Murren to succeed him. Um, and I think that Lanny, you know, he says he's not going into politics. He has, or he has no plans to run for office. Um, I, I think, you know, he is just a guy who um, has other interests in life. I think the timing issue is is interesting, and I think what it allows it allows Murren to sort of take over the reins when the company is going to be at lows. And so for Murren, it's sort of a gift to Murren. It's like when you take over, you know, when Barack Obama takes over the White House, it's hard to imagine that things could be much worse than they've been for the past eight years. And, you know, when you take over when the stock price is, you know, barely into double digits, um, you know, you presume that the, uh, that the um, graph is going to be, you know, pointing up. Um, from then on, and and Murren, to his credit, he has been the biggest backer. Even though Baldwin is building City Center, it was the it was Murren's um, conception, and uh, so you know he'll he it will be his baby when it's opened, and I think that Murren, you know, the company to a large degree is going to uh, you know succeed or um, do less well based on the reception that that property gets. And so, you know, I think it's sort of a gift from Lanny to Murren. Um, a lot of folks in that company really like him. And uh, Murren is, you know, a, you know, a young and sort of a poster boy for the industry. And we'll see um, if, uh, you know, if things work out for him at City Center. But I, I think that the timing probably indicates that Lanny just wants to, uh, you know, I think be pretty helpful to Jim Murren. Well, one other thing that just popped into my head is that when you consider some of the things that are going on in Nevada now, both in terms of the economic crisis and an arguable failure of leadership at the top, uh, perhaps he's, uh, he's, Terry Lanny's gotten it into his head to run for governor. Uh, It's certainly been a a longstanding uh, hobby horse of his that, that the tax structure in Nevada has to be revisited and that the uh, you know that the casino industry tax and the sales tax aren't aren't getting the the job done and he can certainly is in a good position to make that case now so i don't know maybe he's uh you know there there are there uh, you know the 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 election managed to to decimate the number of potential contenders for Jim Gibbons' job. So if there were to be an intra-party challenge, Lanny would be very uh, he, he would be very well set up to to uh, emerge as the front runner. I think that um, that that's unlikely. I think that Terry Lanny, even though he uh, certainly as the uh, ex- CEO of the state's largest largest employer, largest uh, taxpayer. Um, you know, does express his opinion and the company's opinion on Nevada issues. He really has never become a Nevada, you know, a Nevada-centric guy. He's a Southern California guy. Um, he lives just north of San Diego, and he a uh, big horse racing fan. His family, you know, is you know based in California, and I think I think Terry probably wants to go back just like his boss and spend most of his time. Um, in California, um, I would be quite surprised if he runs um, in the you know in our gov- governor election that's coming up in two years. 
Um, you're probably going to see uh, Gibbons, and maybe get a, he may get a challenge from, um, you know, North Las Vegas Mayor Michael Montandon, maybe, you know, Congressman Dean Heller, although that would be a surprise. You never know, um, but, um, you know, certainly there will be plenty of contenders on the Democratic side. And um, I think it would be quite surprising if Terry Lanning ran for governor here in Nevada. As far as other political slots, I mean, the Republicans will probably try to target Harry Reid when he comes up. But uh, same kind of same kind of thing. Doubtful he'd go into national politics. Well, that would be a terrible mistake for a gaming executive to go target the guy who is, you know, the most powerful man in the U.S. Senate. I mean, that that, that would be just shocking. Um, you know, the guy that the gaming industry doesn't like is uh, is Gibbons, um, and and uh, you know, Ensign is already a. Uh, you know, has his own connections to the gaming industry. So there's just no one, you know, he, and he's not up for four years. So there's there's really no likely target in Nevada other than Gibbons. And I just don't see Terry Lanning wanting to live in Carson City. Um, I, I would be shocked. Um, I, you know, to me, I would say that is a 50-to-one uh, shot at, at best. So as far as oh, – go ahead. I wouldn't want – I don't see anybody wanting to live in Carson City. <laughs> I uh, – my thought here is uh, maybe uh, Terry had the, his his career set to auto sell when MGM stock hit ten bucks <laughs> below ten bucks, which is what it did for the first time ever, I think, or as long as it's been tracked this morning. So that's an interesting. I mean, that is you know the 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 compensation side of it may have some kind of a some kind of an impact. I mean, the, I'm assuming that. I don't know what kind of options these guys got, but I would assume that a lot of their options are probably underwater, uh, you know, given the low price of the stock. But what I'm curious about is then is the continuity in the company. Clearly, Lonnie has tapped Murren as his heir apparent, but there's no requirement that the board goes that way. Is there any chance that they would go outside the company for someone uh, or that they would pick someone else like Bobby Baldwin? And if Murren does rise to the CEO post, who's the likely candidate for his job, which is no, the there is no chance, and if, even if you read the press release, it's like the formal election of an of an heir will be made. You know, Kirk Kerkorian owns the majority of the stock in the company, and Kirk Kerkorian is going to decide who runs his company, and if that decision has been made. Um, so it's Kirk Kerkorian. Now, you know, I think Hunter, what your your conjecture raised the issue of these other. Powerful guys and 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 uh, so, you know property presidents certainly Bobby Baldwin um, you know what happens to those folks um, could you know Bobby Baldwin you know you know decide to uh, you know um, deploy his golden parachute you know maybe um, it, it, I I have not talked to Baldwin um, in quite some time so I don't know but um, it wouldn't be surprising um, but you know I think. He gets to enjoy the, you know, as head of MGM Mirage Design and Development, um, you know, he gets, that's the fun, that's the most fun part of the business, I think, is, you know, for a guy like Baldwin, certainly for a guy like Wynn. Um, but he gets to do it, and he's not even responsible for raising the money for it. So um, I think, I, you know, I think Baldwin sort of likes that. So it'll be interesting to see. I do not have a prediction about whether Baldwin will stay or go, although it wouldn't surprise me if he left. Although to, to hear Murren and Alan Feldman tell it, there may not be much designing and developing going on in the next decade. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say anybody's doing much designing and developing right now. Absolutely. And there's, you know, it would 
one might uh, look back at the fate of Alex Yemenidjian when when Lanny resigned the the first time. It was believed that there was a, a power struggle going on behind the scenes between him and Yemenidjian, who was uh, eventually shuffled off to uh, Hollywood. The studio, right? Yes, yes, to mind uh, Kerkorian's affairs at uh, at the MGM Film Studio. And now he's just sort of in the wilderness, you know, hooking up with various marginal gaming outfits and trying to find ways to shoehorn himself back into the industry. Well, it's definitely interesting to see what's going to happen. I assume that the board will try and, you know, resolve this issue pretty quickly. I mean, this isn't really the t- a time when they want uncertainty as far as who's running the show. So I would assume that they'll get this resolved. And, you know, I think uh, I think I agree with everybody that I'm hearing here is it looks like Murren will be the guy in charge. Well, and even if, if Kirk Kerkorian weren't holding all the cards in terms of ownership, corporate boards are notoriously spineless. So I, I you know, to, it's, I, can't, I can't imagine a scenario in which they don't rubber stamp this. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't know where they would get somebody. You know, I think the days are past when a casino company would go out and pick somebody from another industry like they did a lot of times in the 70s and 80s. They'd bring someone in from, someone in from a totally different industry. You know, I couldn't see that happening in two weeks' notice. And, you know, outside of somebody from Dubai World stepping no. in, which I don't think is possible, is likely. <laughs> you know, you're not, I don't think you'll see that. You've also got licensing issues. So yeah, right. I think Murren's got to be the, the pick. He's in the Unless it's Pansy Ho. Or some of the uh, soon-to-be-available executives from Ford or GM or Chrysler. Exactly. Well, uh, as this develops, we'll continue to report on it. But it was, uh, you know, I was surprised to see the news come over the wire today. Not what I was expecting, at least in this time frame. Obviously, it wasn't going to be there forever. But it uh, seems like uh, an inter- interesting timing, but um, we'll see what happens. Uh, next up. Another Las Vegas-based company that is having um, has been having quite a bit of trouble lately. It just seems to get worse and worse for these guys, uh, and I don't know how bad people feel about it. Uh, Las Vegas Sands. Uh, they run the Venetian and the Palazzo in in Las Vegas, and Sands Macau, Venetian Macau, and now the Four Seasons Macau in China. And they've had a pretty rough couple of weeks here. Um, they were they made a disclosure that they may not be able to meet certain uh, leverage requirements for their debt covenants. Uh, that disclosure may have been a audit requirement, but either way, uh, it shows that the company is not in great financial condition at the moment. In a response to that, um, they have they have announced that they're going to be raising some more capital. I think part of it's a stock offering, and part of it is a public offering, and part of it is sort of a pre- preferred shares that are going to be bought by Sheldon Adelson, the chairman. Um, so, you know, a couple things regarding this story. How bad is it for Sands? I mean, we seem to talk about this every single time because things just get, keep getting worse for them. But um, you know, are they are they going to survive this? And B, a very interesting part of the story was this sort of somewhat semi buried, but I did see it in a couple of mentions was this sort of conflict that seems to be in the senior management that there's some lot, lack of confidence. Can somebody flesh out exactly what that means and and uh, and you know shed some light on that? Well, to to read between the lines of of the reporting on this, 
the uh, you know the well it's sort of like the the infighting that occurred between the McCain and Palin camps is it became clear that they were going to lose and that somebody needed to be scapegoated and it sounds like the it, it the narrative that that emerges subtextually is that there's there's a power struggle going on within the the Doge's palace at the Venetian, and that on the one on the one side you have William Widener and uh, Brad Stone and Rob Goldstein trying to put the brakes on Sheldon, and Sheldon wanting to go full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes and the economy alike. Um, so that uh, I mean that seems to be why the you know it. To the best that that uh, one can infer from what's been reported, that was that that was the motivation for the creation of this special committee, which will now arbitrate disputes between Sheldon Adelson and senior management. So it you know it sounds like some of the top executives there are are positioning themselves for a scenario in which they either a somehow figure out how to push Sheldon under the bus. Or B, spin it in case he, seeing as he's still the majority shareholder and will continue to be, pushes them out of the company and they say, well, you know, none of this would have happened if they just listened to me. You know, it, it, and first of all, I obviously have no inside knowledge about what's going on in the boardroom at Las Vegas Sands, but it has been a stunning week. To hear, uh, you know, the uh, the widely reported Wall Street Journal, several other sources um, citing inside informed sources saying that there is um, at least a partial schism between the uh, executives who run the place, meaning Bill Widener, Rob Goldstein, Brad Stone, and Sheldon Adelson, and uh, you know that would have been unheard of, you know, obviously any time before a year ago because. The company was riding high. Sheldon certainly taking uh, the lion's share of the credit, and uh, and his executives sort of you know sort of uh, you know granting him the credit, and uh, you know working you know it seemed like they were all working together at least publicly. So to see this kind of um, infighting um, is is stunning, and you know you can only blame the you know the the rapid change in the circumstance of the company. Um, and I think that, you know, Sheldon may have been resistant to the idea of giving up on his vision. Um, I don't know about how happy he was to have to commit a half billion of the family fortune and now another billion um, to uh, to prop up the company and get it in accord with its uh, debt covenants. But, um, you know, Sheldon has been, you know, has long been, um, viewed as a very stubborn, very proud man. Um, and, you know, so I think that, you know, to that, so obviously that change in the fortune of the company prompted this dispute. Um, the question, a, a, a couple of questions that come out of that is, he'll still own more than half of the company. Is it possible for him to lose? Um, and, you know, I don't know the answer to that. It would be surprising to me if he was. Um, and then the other half is the first question Hunter posed: Is it a company that is? Is it still a company with with, um, with value that can make money in the long run? And it clearly is. I mean, this is this is a, a company with 
two very strong assets. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, I mean, I, Sheldon would hate this, but if Wall Street recognizes it, you know, you'd say, well, um, you know, it's not a bad thing. Um, they, it is a company that has right near the top of the best properties in the two best gaming markets in the, in the world and a near monopoly, a duopoly um, prospect in Singapore and um, a nice location in Pennsylvania. So, I mean, you look at what their assets are and, you know, they have a lot of fantastic assets. Sure, they probably overbuilt in Macau, emphasizing quantity more than quality. Um, and you know, and 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 you can quibble about what they've done, but they absolutely have great money-making prospects. And so, you know, the, for that company, if the if the economy turns around, particularly if the Asian economy improves and if visa restrictions are relaxed over time, as you might think that they will be, um, I, I don't see how anyone could doubt. Whether the whether the core assets of that company are economically viable, um, you know they did what they had to do. Um, now, if it was Widener, Stone, and Goldstein saying, "Hey, we got to slow down in Macau," well, you know maybe that was a good check on on Sheldon. But you know he, he was the guy who um, got them into into Macau, and so you have to give him credit there. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't know those guys. Um, but uh, to me, I think you cannot deny the viability of that ongoing enterprise. I think there's the no doubt that they have strong assets. Go ahead, Chuck. Yeah, the uh, the thing about the Kotai with the spending Kotai about why they built so much is to to, inst- to create an instant spectacle, which is what the grandness and the scaleness of the Kotai. You know, that's that's what. It, People appeals appeals to people when they go to Vegas. You know, you go there and you're just like, oh my goodness, look at the size of these buildings and da 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 da. da. Same thing as going to city. Kotai, uh, if it were just the Venetian Macau and nothing else there, would be, well, you know, this is like a, it's like prim, you know, to a degree. You know, except it's on mud. Or more, or more like the Grand Sierra in Reno, just this yeah, huge exactly. building stuck on the edge of town. Exactly. Very, very similar. You know, so so to build that spectacle, that sense of excitement of buildings, of things, of all this stuff, you know, they had to go in there and spend all that money to build, 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 build AS, you know, as quickly as they possibly could. What I find interesting about this discussion is I actually listened to the Sands call last night. I hadn't read any of this, uh, some of the stuff you guys are referring to. And when I was listening to it, it real I heard the schism between them. It seemed like it was a uh, a uh, an Italian funeral. I'm an Italian, so uh, so I can say things like this. But you know, half the people are there and they're like weeping or you know saying hello to family. The other half are looking around to see you know what piece of the pie they're going to get next. You know, and I got the impression from from uh, Brad uh, Stone, I believe his name is, and the other uh, two guys who were yakking on the call, that they were like, you know, the young guys in the office who were ready to, uh, you know, to basically move up in the world. And here's Sheldon pausing the call to search through his bag. I think I've got my copy of the Macau Daily Times here somewhere. Oh, wait, let's pause the call for five minutes while I look to read you an article in the paper. You know, it just seemed like who is this guy, you know, other than the fact that Grandpa has all the money, 
it doesn't seem like there's any real personal rapport between these guys, or they even care what he has to say beyond, okay, did Sheldon have his testament? Let's move on to the next actual topic that we have to cover here to save this company from falling into oblivion. Well, and weren't and, people eating during the conference call, too? <laughs> I didn't that's, hear any. I didn't hear any chewing, but uh, that's just hilarious. I mean, I've heard that you know the, that there was somebody reported hearing all the clatter of dishes and somebody slurping, and uh, you know, which is. I mean, I've listened to enough conference calls to just find that rather, a rather shocking breach of of etiquette. It sounded like it was a bit of a train wreck. From I didn't hear the call, but from what I read, the coverage of it, it did sound like it was a little bit of a train wreck. The one before it was a train wreck too. They, uh, Bill Widener was like screaming and yelling about the how the they messed up the call, Thompsons or whoever was doing the call and the operating. So this is like two in a row that they've been completely disorganized and who knows what's going on. And it used to be a company with formidable message discipline. Plus, they you know they, they fostered this bunker mentality of us against the world, and you know you you never saw the kind of Fishers in that in that uh, facade that that have come to light this week. Well, one thing that may be interesting is we do see uh, more power being exercised by Widener. Um, he, you know, we may start thinking of Sheldon a little more, uh, um, yeah, a little more kindly in in uh, in relationship to Widener. I mean, it seems like some of the things I've read about Widener recently going on a uh, you know a an anti-Obama rant at an, at an anti-defamation league banquet. Um, there's a long-told story about his limo pulling right onto the legislative grounds to take him up to the uh, a meeting of the meet to meet with legislators in Carson City. Um, you know, like pulling right onto the steps, uh, right in front of the steps. I mean, it's just sort of nutty, but if, you know, if that's true, it's just an example of you know of arrogance, and uh, you know, I think that's something that people. People probably connect with Sheldon too, so uh, maybe uh, maybe uh, people will be longing for the good old days of Sheldon soon. Well, I've written about you know. oh, it's going to be kind of like Star Wars in reverse, where first we met the Emperor and then we get Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> it's just you know these guys have worked together for a long time. To to hear about this kind of the schism is is unusual. I mean, you know, just as as some of you guys have been saying, it's just not what I was going to expect. The drama from Las Vegas Sands, as if their falling stock price and financial problems weren't drama enough. Well, and and the, you know, even though Larry Klatskin and Bo, and Bill Lerner have both uh, come out and said, you know, move along folks, nothing more to see here. Uh, you know, the, the the shoes, the other shoes continue to drop. I mean, in addition to the five projects in Macau that are that are grinding to a halt, they they uh, uh, there was a non-gaming resort across the river on Hinquin Island, which has been indefinitely postponed, which which may or may not be corporate speak for its toast. Um, the it it just came out uh, yesterday that the Singapore project is going to be guess what a soft opening. <laughs> well, see, it starts as it will be all opening at the same time. Then it'll be a soft opening. But we actually saw the more re- the most recent finesse of that in at Venetian Macau when. For about a year, they said, okay, it's going to be a soft opening. And then it all opened relatively 
closed at the same time, although they did have people staying in the rooms and some events, because they couldn't even time the soft opening right, and everything everything got pushed back to like the latest of the of the soft opening plan. So yeah, the, it's a company that doesn't really really seem to care too much about about timing. Yeah, well, and as, again with the way that they opened Palazzo this past December oh. slash January, it was exactly that kind of total dis discombobulated, um, you know, never know if it's going to be open and then half the place is open. And then it's just, yeah, you're right. They don't, they don't seem to have that as a number one priority. Well, I, I have a question for Chuck. Um, Chuck, I think you've probably been to Macau more recently than, than the rest of us. Um, what would you say? Um, one thing I've been hearing and I, and as I look at their numbers, they'll say they, they, they have a list, um, in their earnings thing about other Asian operations and they'll have you know some big loss numbers there, and I, as best I can tell, that's probably the ferry operation. And I'm wondering now that they're only going to be, you know, they're going to be delaying the rest of Kotai. Um, you know, I'm hearing that 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 the Kotai ferry, um, you know, sure it did add a lot of capacity, but in this time of visa restrictions and most people wanting to go to the peninsula. I mean, you know, a lot of the good properties in Macau are on the peninsula, way more of them. And so it's sort of like the Kotai is like, even though the boats may be newer and, and it's a newer terminal, people sort of use that as like the backup plan. And, you know, cause they're going to end up having to take a taxi or, a, you know, a, a little shuttle bus or something to over, over to the peninsula. Um, you know, I'm wondering what is going on with that ferry, and is that something that is uh, going to be a long-term money loser for them? Well, what I got—I don't really know exactly because that that ferry just started this year, and right. I was there just over a year ago. Uh, so I—it was still like in the talking stages. You know, they they had bought the boats, but uh, they had no uh, license to operate them. But judging from the call, whether or not you believe what they're saying in the call, and I, I tend to, to believe what they're saying in the call, uh, you know, they're, they've amped up the ferry frequency. You know, it was going, like, only during the day and every hour and then every half hour, and now they're going to be going almost every 15 minutes for 24 hours. And the, the Kotai jet and the turbo jet versus, like, the fast ferry, uh, the fast ferry goes not fast; it goes really slow. Uh, but the, the the turbo jet, the other ones, those things just cut across the water like a high speed, you know, superboat. And and the Kotai jets themselves actually land in uh, Taipa near the Crown, near where Crown is, and then the bus just takes them over the hill. So it's a two second drive on the bus uh, to get to the Venetian. So I think you know if they're going to just get as much traffic and as much people going to, uh, you know, to take their ferries, that's basically saying we're going to come to your house and pick you up from Hong Kong and bring you right to the Venetian. You know, that, that to me is, it seems like a, it's, it's a really smart plan. You know, they're, they're, they're bringing people to where they want them, which is to spend on Kotai and not, you know, you're not going to go and take the Kotai jet because of the, uh, You'll, you'll get on the Kota jet because of the time, if it's every 15 minutes, because it operates out of the same terminal as the uh, Shuntak ones. Uh, so, well, it's, it's hard to describe. You know, you, they just want to get people going to Kotai as opposed to going to 
the peninsula and then taking the bus over the bridge and then because of the way the roads work in Kota, you got to have to go around the big circle before you can actually come into the Venetian. So, you know, it's, it's, to me, I'd say the ferry thing is a, is a no brainer. You know, they just got to get more boats and operate them every five minutes or every 10 minutes, as much as they can get people coming over there. That seems like a winning proposition. Do you think that the slowdown of development of Kotai, and and I think you were dead on when you said that the importance was to create, you know, the new Vegas Strip, that that sort of vibe that this is the happening part of town. Look at this dramatic uh, monolith. Um, but instead, you know, you look at what's on the peninsula still. I mean, and and when I was there, they were they were uh, last there. They were building. Um, they had not opened Venetian Macau yet. And, um, but certainly the peninsula, it seems to me that it would take more than three or four hotels to supplant even one on as grand a scale as Venetia Macau to supplant the peninsula as the happening, exciting place in Macau. Would you, do you think that based on what you, what you see and hear that the peninsula is still clearly, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the important place in Macau? You know, it it's it's kind of like uh, you know the peninsula is always going to be the place. I think you know that's always going to be like the strip. It's it's just got that that old history and whatnot. And as some of the old, I'm, I'm just projecting towards the future whether or not this happens or not. Who knows? But as some of the uh, older hotels and buildings that are lining uh, Avenida de Amazade go bye-bye and get replaced with, uh, you know, bigger, fresher places, it's going to become even more dynamic because it's it's more urban. You know, the streets are real small. Everything's real close together, and the buildings are uh, on a very small land footprint, you know, so they have to stack a lot of stuff into a small uh, space. But Kotai, uh, you know, there's – what they've canceled, what Las Vegas Sands has canceled is, uh, you know – stuff that really isn't being built yet anyway right now they basically put the kibosh on uh the hilton conrad fairmont raffle stuff which is pretty much just a pile of uh dirt at this point and the uh, far east intercontinental project which is just south of the four seasons so they haven't really put too many shovels into the dirt there they're just saying we're not going to spend the money on this uh the ones that are going is the St. Regis there, the Shangri-La traders and the Sheriff. Those ones are really cranking towards the final stages of completion. I think they were thinking like September of next year for them to be open. And City of Dreams is going to open in the first half of last year. So altogether, you've got the Venetian, which is one gigantic hotel, the Four Seasons, which is one gigantic, well, smaller-ish hotel, City of Dreams has four hotel towers as part of it. The St. Regis Shangri-La Traders shared in that's four. So you've got a cluster right there of eight or so hotel towers just for starters. Uh, you know, when you get some more other stuff kind of built in there, you know, it'll and also the Galaxy, too, which is right around the corner. So, you know, I think it's it's getting close to that point where there would be that instant spectacle would have reached the synergistic spot of excitement. But it's still, you know, the, the Venetian itself is still, you know, it's quite awesome when you look at it, you know, the scale and the, the hugeness of it. I have friends who are not big gamblers who live in Hong Kong, 
who I knew before uh, meeting him through uh, the site. They were just friends I'd, I'd worked with. And they, when they go there, they go to the Venetian with their kid, like repeatedly. Hmm. Hmm. Don't I, ask me why. You know, you know I mean, for, for me and, and <clears throat> the whole, you know, Las Vegas Strip just at water here kind of approach to Kotai, where they're going to kind of going to invent the excitement of the strip in uh, you know five short years. Uh, I've always sort of questioned what how how well that was going to work in actual terms. Just in, part of part of the interesting thing about the strip is it grew organically. Different hotels for different market segments at different time periods from different designers. A master planned Las Vegas Strip. I just personally can't imagine would be anywhere near as interesting as the one that we have today. Yes, it's as though they were trying to cram 50 years of, of development into five, which, uh, you know, which, which dovetails with some of the, the excessively rosy predictions that were made about that market. I mean, it's it's proven to be a very lucrative market, but I think that it was that you know some of the economic models that they were using are you know it's it's like them coming out and saying that well by within you know by 2012 they'll have made over a billion and a quarter off of uh, marina bay sands i i'm sorry i find that a little difficult to believe and they gave they gave the math breakdown in the call was quite interesting too they said well when people go to uh, Kotai, their average like day, hourly day stay is like 1.2 hours. But when people go generally travel to Singapore, they stay for you know two or three days. So therefore, they're multiplying what Macau does to what <laughs> you know the ratio of pe- Chinese uh, people in Singapore, you know minus the uh, Singapore quote unquote tax. You know, that's how they came up with the numbers. Be kind of kooky, interesting uh, voodoo economics, I guess. Well, and they've been talking about Calcutta and Jakarta as being the the real markets for for the Kotai Strip. And and when I heard that, I thought, wait a minute, those are the markets that everybody presupposed were going to be among the two or three prime feeders for Singapore. So if you're if you're you know, so it sounds like like Sands is is in danger of eating its own lunch over there. Not to mention, they've also been kicking the tires in South Korea, Taiwan, and the Philippines. Yeah, but their sales pitch can't be quite as effective as it was a year ago. You know, no longer are they look. We're the ones who uh, transformed Macau. Um, we're the ones who invented convention-oriented um, casinos on the Strip. You know, now it's you know we're the ones with a uh, you know, a management a management turf war and our stock going from 150 to five. I mean, it's a it's a it's a tougher sales pitch. You know, I'd be interested in Dave Schwartz's perspective on, you know, when when you look at the, you know, I think when Adelson planned Kotai, he thought that Macau would follow the Las Vegas model of an old-fashioned downtown with properties with small footprints, relatively small footprints, being, um, you know, being pushed to the side eventually by, you know, these more grandiose, larger footprint properties, um, you know, like you would build on Kotai. Um, and then when I thought about Atlantic City, um, you know, you have obviously there's the appeal of the of the boardwalk and the beach that's tough for the properties on the marina to replicate, but 
that aside, you have a couple of the nicest properties um, over there now. You have Borgata and its uh, adjacent tower, and you have the new the new Harris Tower there. Um, I'm wondering, um, is it, what 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 Dave are your thoughts on sort of you know artificially trying to re- recreate sort of a new center of a of a distinct geographic area? Is it sometimes forcing the issue to say, look, we're going to go to Bader, we're going to go to the Marina, or is it or or does it make sense like like they tried to do in Kotai to to force the issue? Well, I think it's part of the bigger master planning, you know kind of theme that's running through everything today. If you look at the news in casino development since 2002, 2003, it's really been the idea of master planning, and that's been pretty much everywhere, especially in the Strip. And what LVS is doing in Kotai isn't that much different, although it's on a bigger scale, from what MGM Mirage is doing with City Center, what Boyd will one day do with Echelon, and so on and so forth, and what Wynn is going to do with a golf course property. The difference is that Wynn a while ago said he was going to catch his breath and wait to develop the golf course property. He didn't just go in in 2000, 2001, buy the Desert Inn, and then say, okay, five years from now, I'm going to have 10 casinos you know, with 30,000 hotel rooms here. So I think that's a difference there. Um, as far as Atlantic City goes, you know, those casinos have, have always been really self-contained. So even the ones on the boardwalk, I would be amazed if even if 5% of the people who came in there ever made it to the beach, you know, in the summer, even to say nothing of the winter. So I'm not, you know, I, I think the problem or the difference with the marina is that once you go there, you stay there, which, pe- which the casinos like. Um, as opposed to the boardwalk ones where you can kind of bounce around between, you know, within the little clusters. I have another question I want to raise. I got an email this morning asking me to comment on a rumor that the Singapore government had taken a 30% stake in Las Vegas Sands. Has anyone heard about this? They've denied it publicly. Um, and, you know, there's been rumors about Sing- about Singapore government or the tourism board potentially acting to uh, shore up the uh, additional um, loans that um, Sands has to take to finish that project. But um, from what I've seen, the Singapore government has said publicly that they do not intend to do that. Now, whether that's just delaying talk while they put the deal together, maybe, but um, I haven't heard anything beyond what they've said publicly. Well, it was it was somewhat more nuanced than that. They said that, well, if if capital land which is 40% owned by Temeshek Holdings, which is the development arm of the Singaporean government. If they were to choose to, uh, you know, if, 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 you know, were to uh, independently choose to invest in Las Vegas Sands, well, you know, that's out of our hands, you know. Right, and, that's correct. So there could be some kind of, I mean, it, perhaps that is what has happened, is that, that capital, that, that the Singaporean government has sort of, as you know, as has executed some jujitsu here by by doing what Dave has described, but by doing it through capital land, which gives it a couple of degrees of separation. It's just amazing that Singapore has gone in a few years. I remember back in 2002 or 2003, I went to a conference in Singapore and gambling, and we all the delegates got a notice from the government saying, 
you are not allowed to talk about the possibility of the government of Singapore legalizing gambling. You know, nobody is allowed to speak about that. And I'm like, well, free speech. And I'm like, well, there is no free speech here. So it's just amazing that within five years or so, they could go from not even allowing people to talk about gambling at a private conference to owning one third of a major casino company. It's kind of funny. Wow. All of this Las Vegas sand stuff is, is pretty insane. Who knows what's going to happen next? I, I think I'm going to cut off the Las Vegas sands discussion for right now, even though that was very interesting, and try and move on since we are uh, closing in on uh, on a, up to an hour. And I'm trying to get a couple more stories in quickly. Um, the next one that I'm hoping we can discuss for a few minutes is a story about lowering the gambling age. Um, a story popped up in the Sun recently about the possibility possibility of lowering the gambling age to 18. Helps stimulate the market. Uh, I actually posted this on my blog, and I got, got quite a few comments um, with all sorts of opinions back and forth. And I wanted to quickly go around and ask the group what you guys thought about this idea. Um, is this a good idea? A bad idea? I continually were, was reading comments about, you know, basically saying if they're old enough to join the military, they should be old enough to gamble. Kind of, kind of thing that you hear now and again. But what do you guys think? Let's open well, it up to person. Personally, um, like I think I said in, in a comment on your blog, I think it might be the right decision, but they're doing it for the wrong reason if they're doing it for economic reasons. If they're saying, well, we're going to try to get out that last little bit of gaming revenues just to keep the revenues going up. I mean, that's absolutely the wrong reason to do this. You know, the right reason to do it is to sit down and say, well, you know, like you said, people are old enough to serve in the military. Why can't they gamble? You know, that's a big question, though. The other question is, if you look around the world, a lot of other countries and even, you know, other jurisdictions in the U.S. have gambling ages of 18. So I think that there's definitely precedent for this. It's not like this is that they're taking something that's always been everywhere in the world and all of a sudden they're trying to change it. I don't have a for or against position on it. I think that two things. One, that, that Dennis Nylander, the chairman of the Gaming Control Board, and Pete Bernard, the chairman of the Gaming Commission, were completely out of line to say that, well, we'll take that up with, with the legislature in Carson City. You know, if somebody wants to, you know, if Thomas Smock of Aristocrat Technologies or whoever was pulling his strings on this one wants to take it up with the legislature. That's how the democratic process works. You know, the regulators should or should not be in the position of advocating uh, a, a major change, acting as the advocates for a major change of policy like this. It would be sort of like Ed Hockley going over to the sidelines to Mike Singletary and saying, well, I know it's a third and long situation, but I really think you should run the Statue of Liberty here. The other thing is it just it's and this kind of echoes what Dave said, is it's an index of just how desperate the industry is because there are any number of times that this discussion could have been held, but the fact that it comes up now uh, indicates just I mean it's like it it is it cannot be coincidental that it happens when the when the 
casino industry is at its its lowest ebb since 9/11, if not longer. And I, I should should add for those of our listeners who don't follow Nevada politics, Messrs. Bernard and Nylander never got a chance to take it up with the legislature because the Speaker of the Assembly and the Majority Leader of the State Senate wasted. I mean, they got a, a, sesh, a sense of where the wind, which way the wind is blowing in terms of voter sentiment, which is very much against this. And they came right out and said, no, we both oppose this. And it looks like that may be the end of it. Well, for, you know, I think that there's a couple um, misconceptions. I, you know, our reporter came back ha- having attended that uh, gaming regulatory session. And this is one guy. He didn't represent the industry. He's not a straw man. He's just he's a, he's a, he's a lawyer for a company. He took pains to say, look, I'm not speaking for my company. I'm talking for me. And, you know, a slot maker, what, you know, what do they really benefit anyway? It's not, I mean, it's like two steps removed. Um, and But this guy is saying he thought that it might be a good idea, um, you know, to do it. So, I mean, and, and for Nylander and Bernard, I don't necessarily think that it's out of their jurisdiction. Say, look, someone has raised this issue. I'm just throwing it to you. They didn't say that they – I bet they would oppose it. But um, they were just saying that they, that they thought that the question was an intelligent question. And Hello. 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 Oh, Jeff. Uh-oh. <laughs> I wonder if this means that if I if I suggest re- lowering the gaming age to 15 that that Nylander and Bernard will will also promise to take that to Carson City on my behalf. <laughs> you should take that up with them. I think Yeah, well, and as for aristocrats, seeing as they just sacked their their second CEO since uh the beginning of 2003, I uh I think they've got a little bit bigger fish to fry than whether whether what the gaming age in Nevada should be. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, I think it also it's so strange the way the industry works where they get a good role and things are going well for a couple of years, then things take a little downturn and revenues are off what, between 7 and 10%? And all of a sudden, it seems like they want to blow up their whole business model with, hmm, let's have strip clubs in the casinos. Let's lower the gambling age. Right. It's just amazing that there's that kind of panic reaction. Such and no- a low tolerance for, you know, for any kind of a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, and how much disposable income really is there in that 18 to 21-year-old demographic? I would think it'd be pretty big in spring break. And uh-huh. probably pretty big for Final Four weekend, but besides those two special kind of occasions, I don't know how much there will be flow. You know, I was thinking college kids coming out for spring break or um, Final Four weekend, which is big with kids who've been out of college for two or three years. But you know, besides that, I don't know that they'd be making regular pilgrimages to Vegas from. You know, well, in colleges. and of course, the other big problem is the drinking age is 21. And unless that were to change, you now have this problem where you don't have a harmonious, um, you know, age limitation, and you've got to then spend a lot more time and effort to differentiate. Oh, you're old enough to gamble, but not not old not old enough to consume alcohol. Yeah, and I think the question of what the age of a legal majority is, or however you say that, when you're legally an adult, is such a bigger social question. I think it's totally beyond the realm of the Nevada state legislature to decide it, you know, given that they don't have such a great track record in deciding most other things. <laughs> Jeff, I agree with you're that. back. I, yeah, sorry about that. I, uh, um, I'm strong enough to outlast one dead phone. Um, but <laughs> but the, uh, 
Congress. The thing that, you know, I think Dave is exactly right. This is, you know, the federal government started with its, you know, pressure on states to um, synchronize drinking ages at 21. And it, it probably doesn't make sense to have separate drinking and gambling ages. Um, I don't, you know, I think that it, it's certainly true that some of Nevada's neighbors or neighboring tribes have gambling for 18-year-olds. Um, and I wouldn't object to get to gambling for 18-year-olds, but I think that a, a better solution would be if states across the country had the total ability to set their own ages without any interference from the federal government um, so that it would be pretty easy to say 18 for 18 for alcohol, 18 for gambling, and 18 for the uh, obligations that we put on people as well. There, there. All right. I'm going to try and squeeze in one last very quick story that Dave, that Dave, you recommended, which is regarding the World Series of Poker. Um, this week marked the final table of Harrow's World Series of Poker. This year, the event's format has changed a bit. And Dave, uh, since you wrote an article about about the World Series recently, maybe you can quickly tell us, uh, you know, what what's the difference and what does it mean for the for the tournament. Basically, the problem with the ratings were that um, they were dropping because they were playing the final table in June, July, and then airing it in you know around this time of the year. So people had kind of everybody who followed it rapidly already had gotten the spoilers in the internet and had seen you know and heard about it so much. So what they did this year was they waited until they got down to the last nine people, then they had them wait three months, and then they played the final table, and they were able to air it almost live on TV. So there was still a lot of excitement. And I think it worked out pretty well for them. It, you know, it's definitely a change, and it probably added to a lot of the drama and a lot of the suspense and also gave them three months to hype it up. So imagine, you know, there's that two-week kind of dead period between the conference games and the Super Bowl. So imagine for three months of them doing nothing but hyping this, getting to hype it on TV, kind of build, you know, imagine if you didn't know anybody, you know, any football teams, and all of a sudden you were supposed to be so invested in the Super Bowl, but you had three months to meet the people on the team. That's kind of what this was like. So it was really a change that was key to the whole reality TV era. So we're likely to see this continue. I think so. I think, you know, I don't know what the ratings were, but judging from some of the chatter on the web, the fans seem to have liked it. And, uh, you know, anecdotally, it seems to have, to have worked pretty well. Is, is the World Series of Poker still as uh, a potent a brand as it was when Harris bought into it? Uh, I mean, I know poker's, you know, decreased somewhat in popularity. How big of a deal is it these days? Oh, yeah. I think that Harris has really added um, a lot of prestige to the brand because they've exported it so much. And they've got World Series of Poker branded tournaments in Europe. They've got them all over, and they're really able to build it. You know, it's it's not just a tournament anymore. It's a year-round poker league. So I think they've done a really good job with that, and that's one of the areas where they really should be commended. All right. Good. Unless anyone has anything to add, we'll probably call it a day. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for being here. I'm going to go around the table again, and you guys can sound off as to where people can track you down. Uh, Jeff Simpson, how about you? In business, LasVegas.com, and uh, you'll see a, a pretty news-breaking story on the cover of tomorrow's In Business. All right, great. We'll look for that. Dave Schwartz, how about you? Um, dieiscast.com and gaming.unlv.edu. Chuck, where can people track you down? 
I will be the new CEO of MGM Mirage September <laughs> 1st. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I'd like to talk to you about some free rooms. Uh, David McKee, how about you? LasVegasAdvisor.com, Las Vegas City Life, and next week I'll be the really tired-looking guy schlepping up and down the show floor at G2E. Excellent. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, you can find me at RateVegas.com. Thanks to everyone. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>